What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess. So IKEA makes storage affordable. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. A lot of people adopted dogs and other animals from shelters during the pandemic, or maybe even ordered a puppy online. And now, a lot of those animals are being returned to shelters as we start to return to life as it was before the pandemic. But even if you were stuck at home for months or even years at a time, playing with your new companion, you likely missed some of the most significant days of that puppy's life. To fill you in on what it was like from birth, Alexandra Horowitz, who is really well known for her best-selling book, Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know, has written a book called The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. And in it, she describes her own experiences with the adoption of a puppy, but one whom she began to get to know even on the day she was born. Dr. Horowitz runs the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College. So she's a master observer of dog behavior. But as she describes in her book, some of the things she learned in that first year were completely new to her and reshaped the way she thinks about dog cognition. Alexandra Horowitz, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So your book is such a delight to read because I get to live through the first year of having a puppy without actually having a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> and while, you know, while dogs are super cute, uh, I did have a puppy for a few weeks and it was so needy that, I mean, ultimately the puppy was malnourished and needed to be fed every few hours. And so we had to give it back to its mother so that it could feed from its mother because I just couldn't, I lit literally couldn't do it for a puppy. I've now They were too young. <laughs> yes. Um, maybe they were too young, but it was also the runt of the litter. So um, it just, I think it, when there were other puppies around, it, she just didn't get enough nourishment. And then when the other puppies were given away, she had the, the mom all to herself and she thrived. And so I feel like, you know, at least I tell myself it was the best decision ever to give her back. <laughs> but in your book, you describe at one moment in the chapter Imperfect Puppy, the sense that you've had with each of your dogs that you just don't want them anymore, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
you're right. You know, and I kind of forget that I felt this way, but luckily I have a partner who can remind me. The struggle is real. It's difficult to turn over your life to a needy, nonstop creature. I think people feel this way about babies too, right? Like it takes over everything to have an infant and there are times when you just want out. And in my case, I felt like that was a surprise in my experience with this new Sprite. You know, we we lived with two dogs already. I was very familiar with the kinds of demands that dogs would have on my life. And I kind of relish it, frankly. You know, I mean, there's a lot of my life that has been turned over to attention to dogs. And uh, that's turned out to be my career, in fact. So, you know, I went into it with my eyes open. And yet, you know, after several sleepless nights, also feeling like this particular dog, just because maybe of her puppiness, not her herself, really overthrew all the dynamics of the household, the relationships between the dogs, the relationship between the other dogs and us, alienating the cats. You know, every, everybody's dynamic was shifted. There were definitely moments where I did not like her, um, <laughs> but we persisted. <laughs> And it's not her fault. You know, I think it's very much, I want people who get puppies to just realize that this is, it's not forever, right? I mean, there are cases where medically, maybe the dog needs an intervention, right? And it's about a physiological problem, not just they're a difficult puppy, or I didn't know what I was in for. But just to get through those sometimes challenging phases without losing faith in yourself or, you know, your ability to live with other animals. And as you mentioned, you've made a career of observing dogs. Um, And so, you know, obviously, you're going to be much more keenly aware of the dynamics between within your household, um, as you describe. And I I really do want to talk about the Dog Cognition Lab and sort of your your work there. But I want to keep focus a little bit now on sort of the reasoning behind this book. And, you know, you talk about how so often when people, even if they get a puppy, um, as opposed to, say, a full-grown dog from a shelter, like a lot of people do, they miss the first, uh, I don't know, 10, 12, however many weeks of the puppy's life, which are, are significant. So it's kind of like adopting an adolescent. Well, I don't know. You can tell me what the right analogy is. But even then, and I want to talk about those first 10 to 12 weeks as well. But first, I, I just want to say that you know you're really absolutely spot on when you say that in those, you know, when you bring a puppy home, people are so focused on training the puppy, on getting the puppy to sort of come into their life, and they they miss the observations of what of, of the fact that this puppy is is only going to be a puppy for a little while. So I wonder if you could like tell us a little bit about what people are missing when they're spending all their interactions with the puppy in terms of like training and accommodations. I don't know how else to put it. Right. Well, because I think it's so, it can overthrow the dynamics of the household to have a little puppy who doesn't know anything about how to live in a human household enter it. Training has been the way that people decide to act, right? They're like, all right, well, they're, they're, there's, there's kind of equipment you need to get. Maybe you need to get a crate. You need to have baby gate. You need to have certain toys, et cetera. And then there's also ways you should behave vis-a-vis the puppy. And that is to train them. And I think I'm not against training at all. And some of it is 
extremely useful. But I do think that in those moments where we think somehow it's so, so important that the dog learn to sit, when I ask them to sit, I mean, just think about it for a second. Mm-hmm. It is a useful skill, right? It's a, it's a way to ask an infant to sort of settle down and realize that they can be still and can wait until the next request or the next thing's going to happen and not just full of chaotic energy. But really, why do we need them to sit (laughs) as one of the first things they do in our relationship with them? In doing that, we miss the fact that there's this like blooming of an individual that's happening like at lightning speed before our eyes, right? I'm regularly comparing their rate of development in the book to the rate of development of infants because of course, pleasingly, although they start both highly dependent and completely needing their mother um, and unable to thermoregulate and all these things, you know, they, they then surpass the baby instantly, mm-hmm. right? And they're crawling around and clambering around. And when you adopt them, if you adopt a dog at, or buy a dog at about four months or three months, they're probably like a preteen in terms of their development. So that's nuts. You've already missed Uh, 10 years of their life, uh, if it were an infant. And so think about how rich every day is, every interaction, all the things you expose them to, or the opportunities that you miss to expose them to new people or places or sounds or smells or noises, like all those things are happening all the time. And if, if we're just focused on getting them to sit, when we ask them to sit, I think we're missing this rapid development. So I kind of think of either the things that we're missing or the things that kind of, you know, are, are, are significant here in, into sort of three buckets. There's like the bucket of how much of the dog's ultimate personality and behavior is just innate, is built in in some way. How much of it depends on the environmental experiences that we give them? So like, do we take them for walks in a park versus a cityscape? Or, you know, how much do we play with them? And the third being... How much does training actually shape the dog's personality? I think a lot of us have this sense that like, and of course, I think a lot of new parents do too. And when you have a second child, you realize how silly this is, that that what we do actually matters in terms of how <laughs> the, the child develops in terms of their personality when it could, really doesn't, it seems to me. But for dogs, it seems more more straightforward. Like we train them and they're going to be, and if you don't train them, they're not going to be a good dog. And if they're not a good dog, it's your fault because you didn't train them properly in that period. What role do these three the you know hypotheses play? I think it's such a nice way to divide it up. And I wish I'd thought of that way to divide it. Of course, you have genes in the environment, basically, right? Or the first two. And then you have this, you're adding this third one. I think the third one is actually very, very minimal. What the third one defines is how you've decided to sort of circumscribe your relationship with the dog. You've said that what your dog's behavior is about is good or bad sitting, good or bad coming when calling, right? And I'm not sure that that is actually an important way to describe the personality of your dog, but it does describe how we think about the dog, right? I mean, we definitely think a dog who's, we talk about a dog's misbehavior all the time. That's like a regular word we're using, even with a dog who's just entered our household, as though there are like clear good behaviors that we've made absolutely clear and that they should come knowing or something like that. And they don't, and we haven't. So I think that the training defines less like who they are than how we've decided to deal with them. I think who they are is very much that genes environment combination, which we all know about 
where they are, especially because of this selective breeding we've done with dogs, you know, maybe really predisposed to be certain kinds of personalities, to have certain kinds of um, behaviors pop up when they notice certain stimuli. And yet their environment is going to be a huge role in which of those genes turns on and what kinds of behaviors you see. So that I think is their personality, not their training. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, that that first part of their childhood uh, that most of us don't ever get to see. And you had the privilege of like seeing Quid from the time she was born. Um, and you, you describe this like birth. I mean, it's just it, this, this, this poor, poor uh, canine mom, but she like just kept Go, get, get, get oh my putting out puppies. So, okay. So tell, take us to like, first of all, how did you find out about this opportunity? Did you already know you were going to adopt one of her puppies? Like, how did that all come about? I did not know that I was going to get one of this dogs who was named Maze, the Maze's puppies. I was looking for a puppy to adopt. Now I wanted to adopt a, what we would call a rescue puppy, a mixed breed puppy, like a dog that wasn't bred because I love mixed breeds. And, but the easy thing about getting a, a bred puppy is that you know when you know the dogs are mated, or maybe there's an artificial insemination. You know when she's going to give birth, and there's a litter and so forth. With mixed breed dogs, like the the matings are accidental, right? So I had to find a litter which was uh, basically about to be a mom who was pregnant, and then a shelter which had taken this dog in, and then a foster who was going to take in the pregnant dog and raise and and raise temporarily their litter. Uh, I wasn't going to do that. I, you know, I wasn't, I knew that I should, I knew this much. Why? I, Why? Should, I, should, you know? <laughs> I knew I should not have potentially 11 puppies. So I was casting about with a lot of rescue organizations and a couple of them, you know, let me know once in a while when there was a mom that was about to give birth and I would try, I would rush there to try to see the birth um, if the foster was willing. And then I finally met the woman, Amy, who was, taking care of Maze. And just as soon as she had Maze, basically, Maze gave birth. And so then I visited her house every several days to see the puppies growing and take notes on the puppies. This happened right, right, right as the pandemic was entering all our consciousness, having already spread and, and caused, you know, lockdown, basically. So March of 2020, the puppies were born end of January 2020. And so I suddenly realized, oh, this might be the litter because people aren't going to let me into their house in a second, right? Like, I, we don't know what's happening at that time, right? It, it was complete craziness and, and unsureness. And so I thought this is going to be the litter that from which our dog comes. You know, I observed other litters, but this was the one. So it was just a timing thing. It was just timing that it happened to be from this litter, right? I mean, eventually I would have adopted a puppy, from one of the litters, but I wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me that it was going to be this one. There wasn't anything miraculous. In fact, this is an Australian cattle dog rescue group who had picked up this mom from Georgia. And I wasn't thinking I need an Australian cattle dog. I mean, she wasn't a purebred, but I don't have cattle by the way, you know, so I knew that (laughs) I knew that that part of the genetic tendencies of the dog, I wasn't going to be able to satisfy. And so I would have been, you know, typically wary, but then it turned out that maybe I wouldn't be able to get a puppy otherwise. And in fact, you know, it was very tough for people to get puppies when they suddenly decided, I know what kind of companion I want for my long-term confinement. I want a puppy. 
Okay, so serendipitously, this Maze Maze had these puppies. You were there. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of what you observed. I mean, you know, the birth is its own thing, and I feel like everybody yeah. needs to read your book to learn more about that. Because boy, did I learn a lot about <laughs> about the, that. Um, but let's get to the point where now the puppies are all out. They're getting their nourishment. There's eleven puppies, but eight nipples, which I thought was really mm-hmm. interesting, mm-hmm. and it reminded me of our puppy and thinking like, "Hey, she probably just never got a nipple." That's right, because she was smaller. But like, so yeah, so tell us. Let's start there. Like, so because that must already shape their genetic expression. Yes, it's being shaped from the time that they're in the womb, right? So we know that their environmental influences in the womb and include the positioning of the fetuses next to each other, right? When the testosterone starts to be produced producing some who are going to be more males, the females who are near them might develop some more male-like features because they kind of are washed with more testosterone. So they're all born. Looks like a huge surprise to Maze, like, you know, one after the other after the other, but she just handles it ably. Although, you know, she very roughly moves the puppies around, but she has to move them around roughly because they can't do anything. They are just completely without motor abilities that barely move their, lift their heads, maybe they can sort of spread their toes, and they can suckle, but they have to get over there. So she kind of assiduously moves them, cleans them, eating the placenta and so forth, and then moves them over toward her stomach. And they kind of like surge toward a nipple. But if there's an all the nipples are occupied, they just kind of wait, you know, and unless she reorganizes them so a little one can get on a nipple, it doesn't happen. In this case, there was another pair of hands there who could take one of the big ones off and put one of the little ones on, right? And sort of rotate. Or if one kind of, they were in such a pile around her belly, she's lying on her side there in a pile, all aiming for the nipples, falling asleep. If one was higher, they might tumble off and they have no way to right themselves. So, you know, this is where having a person there can come in handy and relieve the mom a little bit of of having to do this organization, bring that puppy back to the pile. They also can't control their body temperature, so they really need to be around each other and around their mom. And then this sort of defines their life for several days, this kind of um, sleeping, um, falling off the pile, I'm eating. They can't relieve themselves on their own. Mom is encouraging by licking, they're relieving themselves, cleaning them up. They're blind, their ears are closed. They basically can feel and they can smell. And so they organize their behavior around that. So it was completely wonderful to see birth because we don't imagine back to birth, I think, when we live with dogs, right? We, we, and I think this kind of contributes to our feeling of them as well, legally, they're considered property, right? They're considered objects or things. And we kind of have types of expectations of them sometimes and their behavior that you might have of an object or a thing. Like I got this car, it should behave this way. I want it with these features and not with these other features. But when you see them from the beginning, you know, and you see them as little like just furry sweet potatoes you see them as growing individuals where perception is coming online and, and, and realization is, is appearing and then attention starts to be drawn and the motor system is gradually kind of asymmetrically coming online. That all very much starts their story. And I think seeing it from their story from the beginning was really moving for me. 
Okay, so they get past to the age, you know, uh, of of now now they're a little bit better able to motor around. <laughs> yeah, pretty quickly. So then what is the kind of next step in their development? Like if you think about, you know, the infant, they kind of roll over and then they can sit up and then they can, you know, crawl. And what's going on with these puppies at that stage? A few days in, they can lift their head. That's important. They have giant heads you know, within a week, they're kind of scooching around. They're not really lifting their whole body, but they're kind of scooching. So a week versus how long does it take for an infant to lift their head voluntarily, you know, or turn over on their own? (laughs) Several months, right? So that's happened within about a week. So then they're ambulatory. If they're over on the other side of the, the room or the blanket or wherever they are, they can find their way to their mom again, or to the pile of puppies again. And they are all sleeping together and hanging out together all the time, which was also kind of profound to see how much the that contact with each other was important in their early life. Even though there aren't enough nipples for each puppy, they weren't competitive with one another? They go for it. I mean, there's like a drive for the nipple. They might try to get their brother or sister off of a nipple, but not aggressively, right? Mm -hmm. More just swimming in a sea and you're going toward the light. Um, If the light is blocked, you'll keep kind of trying to go. I don't think there's a consciousness on display of self and other and a competition. But uh, soon after that, they start to see each other. I mean, within a couple of weeks, they're starting to recognize each other and aim for each other and have social interactions with each other. And this is also about the time that mom starts to pull away more and more. Maybe she's not making herself available on her side all the time to be milked, right? Instead, she stands up and the dog, the puppies have to like reach to her little like physical challenges that she makes for them. And they start to see each other more. There's a lot of biting each other, you know, clambering on top of each other within a couple of, I think it's by the third weeks, they can eliminate on their own. And they're just, there's just poop everywhere. There's, they urinate on each other, right? It's like, like they're, you can see where they've been by their excreta and it's all over each other, right? So they've started to kind of move as uh, less as like a group toward the mom and more this like a uh, hive. And then a week or two after that, mom really starts to move out of the picture and they really start to play together and interact and follow each other. One will be more, a little more adventurous and goes somewhere and the others will follow her lead, right? And so you see then the possibility of a little bit of social learning happening. And so this is week by week, right? And we all know from developmental psychology, these are really important stages, but they happen over a much longer time frame with humans. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. 
That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. So most people who uh, want to get a puppy, they they read a book about you know how to choose a puppy. <laughs> Yes. And uh, and then they come and they observe, you know, a few minutes of the litter. From your experience, and, and I'm sure you're very familiar with the literature on this, like how accurate are those kinds of pieces of advice? Or is it just like a futile thing that <laughs> makes people feel good about a choice that they're making that really is arbitrary? The latter. I mean, I, listen, I think it's important that you that you start a relationship with a dog with the predisposition to like them. So whatever it is about their behavior, some little behavior they did, uh, uh, just a way they look, for whatever reason, appeals to a person, that's a good start because it's sort of like we're predisposed to look at an infant and think they we need to take care of them. And that's useful if they're ours because they need taken care of. And so this sort of early preference, even if it's not indicating anything about who the dog really is, is an important start. We're going to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Like I would have said, I would have thought before I did this that, you know, I never chose a dog at a shelter who was barking because I didn't want a barking dog, right? Well, all the dogs are barking. But since the time that they've been adopted, I know that they bark different amounts. I've heard, I know I've kept in touch with all the, uh, all of our pups litter mates and we've seen them spread out around mostly sort of new England and New York and New Jersey. And even though they were all basically exposed to the same set of things, they did turn out differently. And they're and on any given day. If I went, could I have predicted how they would turn out? I could not have. And I was spending not just a few minutes, as you suggest, most people have very, very brief interactions with pups before they decide, you know, that's the one. But I would spend hours and hours with them. And I still, I couldn't really put personality traits on them that I later saw confirmed in their behavior. Uh, so I just want to remind our listeners that Alexandra is, has, has built a career observing dogs. <laughs> she runs the <laughs> Dog Cognition Lab. So if this is something that she finds challenging, um, let's just say the book should be called How to Convince Yourself You Chose the Right Puppy. <laughs> no, right? Not to have right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, they're also growing into who they are. They're not who fully themselves yet, right? Like, So that will happen with you, which is the good part of it, right? That it will happen while they're in interaction with you. And so you'll be part of who they are once you adopt one. So let's jump to that point. You bring this puppy home, um, having convinced yourself that you made the right choice. Uh, <laughs> but even you had to sleep on it. Uh, like, you know. For sure. For <laughs> right? sure. And now, of course, the hard work begins from your perspective, but also from the dog's perspective. And I, you did a really great job kind of explaining how this is actually just a really challenging situation for the puppy. So tell us a little bit about the kinds of things that you've observed that maybe aren't in the How to Train a Puppy books that you think will make it easier uh, and make this transition easier on the puppy. That's such a great point there. Because we focus so much on making it easier for ourselves, we forget about the fact that a lot of changes have just happened all at once for this preteen, who is in many ways mentally still a baby, right? Even if they're sort of physically a preteen. They've lost their mother and siblings. So all the animals they know, they might have moved into a place where there are no other dogs, period, right? That's very likely. So they've gone from learning almost entirely about 
dog worlds and how to interact with dogs to there's a place where there's no dogs. They've gone from a place where they probably all slept together to a place where, you know, in today's society, a popular thing to do, um, and it's for the dog's comfort as well as for our convenience, is to put them in a cage, a crate by themselves. So they're solitary and they're, they don't have contact with anybody. They don't know anything about a human household. Even if they've been in a human household, they haven't had expectations that they would behave vis-a-vis all the people and things in the house the way that if you live in a house, you're just accustomed to everybody knowing about this is what the chair is for. These are things you can put in your mouth. These are things you can't put in your mouth, right? They don't know any of that, but they're kind of set up to fail by us in many respects because we don't arrange an environment for them where it's easy to learn gradually about that, right? We, we just sort of let them go without it or, or constrain them to a very small space like the crate so that they can't get themselves into trouble, but then they don't have any of the social interactions. So if we start to see the challenges for them in this introduction to a new place, I think that did make me a lot more sympathetic toward uh, the puppy right away, realizing how everything at every level was unknown. And her early exposures to new people, new dogs, new sounds, new smells, new sights, which was very important during this protracted socialization period, um, and which she's, she was still sort of in when we adopted her, even though that's useful, she doesn't see the organization of the world as we see it. And we really have to start to unpack it for her if we want her to succeed. So I want to talk a little bit about about that, like sort of what we know about what it's like for a dog to be a dog, because um, it sounds like that's actually something that your lab uh, really focuses on. And it's it's such an interesting question, you know, about consciousness and not just like what it would be like if I was a dog. What is it like for the dog to be the dog? So and, and one of the things that, you know, I think probably is especially true when it comes to puppies that we compare to human babies is this these anthropomorphisms like we we look at the dog and we we see their behavior and then we project our own you know if if I was behaving that way what what would that indicate in terms of what I'm thinking or feeling can you tell us a little bit about like what what are the kind of basics of dog cognition and how anthropomorphizations or, or pomorphisms get it wrong yeah i wound up studying anthropomorphisms a lot pretty early in my career studying dog cognition because although i was interested in all the classic dog cognition questions, which are really comparative psychological questions. You know, can dogs, like we've asked of chimps, do things that we see human babies learning to do over time or, or human adults? Cognitively, do they problem solve in the same way? Do they think about other minds? You know, do they have a sense of self? Uh, how do they learn? You know, all those comparative psychological questions dog cognition asks of dogs. But in addition, we also, as just people who live around dogs, have this completely separate vocabulary that's very full to talk about what they know or understand or how they do things or their emotions. And these are anthropomorphisms. And I think it's a very natural thing for us to anthropomorphize dogs, but they aren't really subjected to a lot of scrutiny by dog people. And they hadn't received any investigation basically by researchers, right? Research came from sort of the pure research questions. And so we're getting a lot of things wrong. The first thing we get wrong is that we're not inquiring further. We're just immediately assuming about dogs that because that their behavior, if it were ours, analogized to our behavior, 
implies of necessity that they're having the same kind of emotional or cognitive experience that we're having. So even after a day, an hour of living with a new puppy, somebody will be talking about what they want or what they need or what they, they know, or even they're having, oh, she's sad. Oh, you know, she's angry at you for that. She feels guilty. My favorite. Yes. Immediately we're, we're making these attributions to them after very, very little evidence. And so that's wrong. Now, the fact that they feel sadness or maybe even guilt, I'm kind of agnostic about whether they can, that's kind of an empirical question and something that we should be investigating further. And you don't have to have a lab to do that. You know, you can just try to see what the evidence in front of you shows. But the study of kind of anthropomorphisms, which has been part of my career, is a little bit separate from, which is sort of about humans, is a little bit separate from dog cognition, which is completely about dogs, still asking human related questions about dogs, like, do they do these cognitive, do they have these cognitive skills that we, that we do? That's what we're interested in. But those are sort of parallel strains of research in my lab. And most of dog cognition is, is focused uh, just on their human-like cognitive abilities. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. But you're right, the, the anthropomorphisms are, are more about human cognition <laughs> yeah. than, about, than about dog cognition. Yeah, even though they're all the content of them is all about dog mind or dog emo- feeling, it's telling us something more profound about our way of drawing inferences from behavior. And it's not always a very scientific way, of course, right? It doesn't mean it's always wrong. I mean, you could say, you could make an argument that for the most part, our anthropomorphisms are benign or not wrong because, uh, you know, look, we've survived this long in this world of, a- of various animals, many of which are predatory on us. So when we make an anthropomorphism to a bear that he wants to attack me or he's angry, maybe that was sufficiently good that it allowed us to escape in time, right? So they could be just benign, but they're certainly not actually about the bear, right? They're not, <laughs> they're yeah. not Im- important conclusions about the bear. So I want to talk about what I think of as probably the sensory experience that is the most different between dogs and humans, which is olfaction or the sense of smell. Um, you're nodding. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> glad you agree. Yes. Um, and there's, you know, there's been some really just just I think uh, this morning, my husband was telling me about a new paper coming out about how they've seen that dogs with fairly good efficacy can smell Parkinson's disease, even on people who aren't taking medication. So tell us a little bit about dog olfaction and what it's like to be a dog and have that sense of smell. That's the part of studying dogs, which probably has thrilled me the most, because when you study dogs from a comparative psychological point of view, you're asking dogs a lot of visual questions fundamentally. And they're pretty good at doing a lot of visual tasks that we think are, are fascinating, like following points, following our gaze, things like that. But as it turns out, if you look at anything about the dog's anatomy or behavior, really, they are probably primarily olfactory. And we're not really asking them olfactory cognition questions. How do they navigate through smell? What do they know about the world, about us through smell, right? Do they think about themselves and others via smell? What would that be like? Do they experience time and space in smell, right? Those, I think, should be the questions that we ask of dogs because that's their experience. They you know, just a casual look at their behavior shows they are kind of sniffing their way through the world. It looks like they're always looking at the world, right? Because the nose and the eyes go in the same direction. And we look at the eyes and we assume that's how they're taking everything in. But 
all you have to see is a couple of blind dogs navigating a scent and navigating a room by scent alone. And you, and you realize that the nose is really the leader there. They have hundreds of millions more olfactory receptor cells in their nose than, than we do, as well as a much relatively larger olfactory lobe in their brains than ours. And they also have the, the sort of accessory olfactory organ called the vomeronasal organ, which lots of mammals have. And we, we have kind of as fetuses, but that disappears. And then they have this great method of smelling. They smell at a high rate of speed. They could smell something like seven times a second, whereas we really don't. So I started investigating in very simple ways, but also I think it's my way of thinking about dog behavior now is rooted in olfaction. I started investigating how, um, how that affects their performance on, on simple tasks, how, how that changes, how they see the world. And I think they, as we kind of see the world, they're smelling it. And the result is that smells come, are for them just information. So it seems magical to us that a dog could smell a disease, but diseases have a scent, right? And in fact, there were human physicists who used to you know, do a fair amount of diagnostic work with smell, like the breath of um, a patient with typhoid, I think was said to smell like sort of brown bread and diabetes has a smell and so forth. And so that's information is there if we just think about it as that, but we have stopped doing that as, as humans for the most part. And so then it seems miraculous to us that dogs are seeing olfactory information that's in the world. Almost everything has a smell as information, but that is how I think they see it. And so it's, it's really wonderful to try to imagine their perspective from an olfactory one. I even tried in one kind of like experiential exploration to become a better smeller myself, just to kind of like imaginatively leap into the world of a dog. Of course, we can smell a lot more too, if we just uh, do some of the behaviors that dogs do. So yeah, I do think that's a, a major part of the dog's experience of the world. And it's an increasingly large part of dog cognition and other research. The Penn Working Dog Center in the veterinary school at Penn, they're training dogs to detect diabetes, all sorts of cancers. You know, you, I'm sure have heard about dogs who are detecting the COVID virus. Um, they have hypoglycemia detection dogs. So that is within their ability Absolutely. And that includes probably the dog, you know, who's sitting on the couch next to most of us. It made me wonder whether um, this idea of training with visual or auditory cues was really missing a much richer, you know, stimulus for them. Like, it, can you imagine a training tool? And, and I'm thinking like potty training, because that's usually like the thing that is most problematic. Like, what if we tr used smell? instead of like, and could, could, how would that work? But it seems to me like it could be much faster and more effective. Possibly, but I think one th important thing to think about, and we've thought about this somewhat when we're designing experiments, is that as a, a stimulus and, and as a modality, olfaction works very differently than visual stimuli do, right? So light just hits our eyes instantly. It's, it's just sort of appears. Sound also at, at a slower rate just kind of appears but smells are kind of emanating from a source. So they're like a little bit, and then they might take up a space very differently. They also have to be kind of interacted with often, but to experience it, right? So I open my eyes and the, and the room is filled with the information, visual information of the room. But I open my nose, I still have to sniff. 
I still have to do a behavior in order to take in any information. And there are lots of things, even in this room in my house that have a scent, but I'm not going to be able to smell it unless I put my nose up to it, right? So, so the properties of olfactory stimuli are a little bit different. That said, I think that a lot of potty training probably does happen successfully by olfactory cues that are just inadvertent, that it turns out dogs feel rewarded by relieving themselves where their other sense of elimination. And if they start to eliminate in the house, everybody kind of knows that it's it's really important to get up the scent of that urine or defecation because that's where they might go again. So they are kind of already being trained. They learn via olfactory cues, it, but we don't use them. Uh, it, it would be hard to convince people <laughs> to wield the kinds of odors also that they would need to have on hand in order to prompt dogs to learn more effectively where to go. But I think the idea is completely right that our whole way of communicating with dogs is via vision and and audition. And why not through olfaction? Why not at least try through olfaction? Yeah, I can just imagine like a clicker tool that just like releases different scents. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like here, here, okay, here's the pee pee scent. Let's go out and pee pee because smells like pee-pee. I don't know. And then like, yeah. Anyway. No one wants that in their house. But we are doing a study in the lab right now uh, where we're trying to pair uh, a kind of neutral scent with a positive experience for dogs. This this research has been done with, with rats with the hopes that later it could be used to kind of modulate a stress response uh, or, you know, alleviate anxiety in, a, in, a, in an anxiety producing situation. And so that is the type of thing here where it's a neutral odor. Maybe we can condition some kind of response to it. That would be great. I have no idea if it will work. We're not typically like into training dogs. I'm just usually observing natural behavior. And so there's much less that we can get from observations than if we were doing explicit training. But maybe we'll be able to pair this and and this will be the beginning of a new line of research. So I just want to remind our listeners um, that Alexander Horowitz's book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And it's in some ways a follow-up to her previous book, Inside of a Dog. (laughs) So you can start there, maybe, or maybe start with The Year of a Puppy, um, and then learn all about your dog. So I'm going to ask you the question that, like, you know, no parent can really answer. Because you have known Quid essentially since she was born, is she now your favorite dog? Like, you know, is there a different, do you feel like there's a different relationship compared to the dogs that you adopted as adults? There definitely is a different relationship. And she's only now, she's two and a half. Uh, and we lost both of our old, older dogs in this last year. They were 14 and a half, 14. I had a much, much deeper relationship with them. But I knew them for, in one case, almost 14 years. In the other case, 11 of his 14 years. So part of that is just over time. And part of that might be constitutional because of her breed mix. She's just a different kind of dog than they are. And I, and I think also that we, I, of course, I feel like I'm a dog person, but they're definitely dogs like every person who goes and chooses a puppy on the basis of some behavior or look who I am inclined more toward and those who I am less inclined toward. And I feel like my other dogs, I was more inclined toward. Of course, I love Quid. You know, you, you love all your children. <laughs> well, so I, so I have a follow-up question now. Do you think maybe if you hadn't had her as a puppy, 
<laughs> that maybe you wouldn't have had those negative interactions? Oh, no, you know, that's a great question. I do think that knowing her forever, just on her own, considering her by herself, knowing her since the beginning has led to a lot more appreciation of who she is because I know her story and I've been woven into that story and I feel really honored and lucky to know her and she's still changing, right? I, of course, we forget, you know, that whatever this personality is now is different than the one when she was one and it's different than she'll be when she's eight and really enjoy seeing her changing personality too. Just the way that when you live with someone for a long time, part of that friendship or intimate relationship is about having a history with them over time. So my history with her started so early that I already feel like I have a long appreciation of her based on that. Well, Alexandra Horowitz, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It was a total delight. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rehala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Dale LeMaster, and Charles Blyle. The Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions.